1981, Marianne Bachmeier calmly walked into a courtroom in a city in northern Germany and saw the defendant walk in. She reached into her purse, taking out a gun, aiming it at the man's back, and fired. She fired eight times, until she was sure the man who killed her daughter was dead. Over 40 years later, the case is still remembered as the most spectacular case of vigilante justice in German post-war history. This is the story of one mother's revenge and its consequences on the society. and associates, this is the true signature of my love. You see the window outside? How dark is it? It's dark enough. It, I have finished my shift. I have been working from home today with a specific intention in mind to do what? Record for you this evening because I was a lazy piece of shit last week. I actually wasn't. Actually, I have an excuse. Trust. Trust the Scorpio to have an excuse and blame it on something else. <laughs> Actually, that is kind of what I'm about to do. So, I had planned a completely different case for the main channel. It is based off of a popular Netflix documentary, and, you know, it was kind of supposed to be quite like Billy Milligan's case, quite like the case of the Raincoat Killer, telling you a story, you know, in a way where I'm telling it as if... <laughs> Wait... <laughs> Por favor, dame un segundo. Por favor. <laughs> Friends and associates, this is a true signature of my love and commitment to you. You see this darkness behind me? Not the screen, the actual window situation going on? Yeah. Guess what? I have worked from home in particular today in order to then be able to sit down, six on the dot, and deliver this. Because I need your thoughts. I need... I don't need your Sherlock Holmes caps on for this one, because this is pretty much clear and shut case, but I just need people's opinions, because this is controversial, at least in my head, from beginning to end, and truly, I plan to do it just as a podcast episode, but then decided to share it on the main channel as well. A couple of reasons <laughs> for that. One of the reasons is that I am deep in a deep dive on another case that I was actually supposed to record a few days ago, and then... <laughs> then now I'm waiting on a third part of a podcast episode in order to, you know, actually tell you all the details because it is on a very popular Netflix documentary topic which technically reveals it for you but I'm doing it in a style that I have done with Billy Milligan with uh, Raincoat Killer as well where I tell you things that Netflix didn't while we are waiting on that, I was also researching this podcast episode. On the podcast channel, if you don't subscribe to it, fake fan alert, you know, I don't hold a grudge, I don't hold a grudge, I structure them a bit differently. Basically, I still tell you the full story in as many details as I can find online, and then we discuss the motives. So, on the podcast channel, I cover three cases, 
of the same topic and then we move on to the other one. And the whole principle, the whole basis of doing it in that way is to really do like deep dives into three different cases and to figure out the motives of that particular type of crime and why do people, even though they're from different backgrounds, different social statuses, different ethnicity groups, different everything, still choose to either snap or what in their background leads them to commit that particular type of crime. And this is the second vigilantism case that will be on the podcast channel. The first one is equally wild. (laughs) You, I'm just going to give you a warning. It's not a trigger warning, by the way, even though this one should come with a trigger warning because it is on the murder of a child. So it might come with a timestamp on the screen when it comes to the description of how the child had died and succumbed to her injuries. However, the warning that comes here in particular is that we might not have the same opinion. And I'm here to tell you, as somebody who reads for most of your comments, that that is okay. You don't have to agree with me, okay? You don't have to think that vigilante justice type of cases should always be justified or should never be justified. You don't have to agree with me, okay? We can agree to disagree. We can have a debate in the comments, you know? We can actually have an educated debate. I know it's a wild concept for a lot of you online. It's so wild, I know, because I read other people's comments and sometimes people just literally spread hate, share hate purely because they disagree with somebody. I'm like, I'll literally ask you in the beginning and in the end to share your opinion. So, I'm not really going to judge you, just, you know, you don't have to, like, slander somebody, just have a debate. Give me your arguments and I'll give you mine. Cool, cool. Now let us dive into the story of the day and the tone is going to drop real quick because this one, we don't have that many details for the background of the individuals, so just a warning, it gets depressing, like, real quick. In about a couple of minutes, we're gonna go downhill. The pattern I'm picking up on when it comes to the cases of vigilante justice is that they're very much the epitome of that Lady Gaga red carpet moment where she says, I don't believe in glorification of murder. I don't believe in the glorification of murder. I do believe in the empowerment of women. A lot of you, by the end of this case, would agree that the woman that we are going to be talking about today should have been glorified for her actions, should have been glorified for killing the murderer of her own child. This guy was, as we will soon learn, a known offender. And this could have possibly even been prevented. There are things that would definitely go in Marianne's favor. And for us to make that decision, to make an educated decision, we need to dive into the background of all of the people we are going to be talking about. The most amount of information we have on Marianne herself. She grew up in a city in East Prussia. So, East Prussia used to be the area that was referred to as the Polish Corridor. This area would eventually get taken over by Russia and Poland. And by the time Marianne would be born on June the 3rd, 1950, Germans that lived in that area of East Prussia chose to evacuate it and go to West Germany as refugees. 
from all of the resources I was digging into, I would say Marianne's childhood was quite unhappy and unstable on all fronts. So her dad was actually in the military, and then he ended up serving for Waffen-SS, the military branch of the Nazi SS party. Now, what this meant in the post-war period, as Marianne was growing up, was that he applied that authoritative behavior in their household. However, whether it is because the war had ended the way it did, whether it is because this was sort of innate to him, he would also start drinking a lot. So Marianne's early years were just happening in this household where the father was drinking and then spending all of the time in a bar and never really spending any time with the family. Even when her dad would come home from spending the day in the bar, he would display that alcoholic behavior through aggression. So it was said that this was not a happy household. And eventually, Marianne's mom would divorce her dad. Marianne as a child was said to be free-spirited. It is said that she clashed with her conservative parents. But soon after that divorce, her mom would make a decision to remarry. Now, Marianne's stepfather was said to be a tyrant, abusive in most of the sources as well, and he would clash with Marianne quite a lot. And eventually, the mom decides to take his side. I'm not sure what level of abuse, of tyranny was going on in that household, just that eventually she would kick her, her daughter, Marianne, out of the house. So at the age of 16, Marianne is just literally left to fend for herself. This would lead to her having a teenage pregnancy in 1966. She would actually carry it all the way through. She would have her first child and then give them up for an adoption when they were an infant. During the next few years of high school, the only person Marianne could rely on would be her boyfriend. So two years after having her baby, giving it up for adoption, Marianne would fall pregnant again. And this time, she was kind of indecisive, you know, whether or not she's ready to have this child, would she be giving that up for adoption again, should she abort, but she decided to carry it through. And then one night, just before she was to give birth to her second child, she would be raped at a nightclub. As you could imagine, this was quite traumatic. It took a toll on her, her mental state, and also her relationship. So... Shortly after giving birth, she broke it off with her boyfriend, and she would also end up giving that child up for an adoption. Around this time, as Marianne is 18 years old, she decides to leave school and figures she needs a job and a place to stay. Now that she is single, she needs to look for different sort of income and also needs to find another place to stay because she's clearly not accepted at her family home. She would soon find a job as a waitress at this bar called Tipasa in Lubeck Old Town. So let us back up a bit and speak about Germany and where this place that she will be working at is, just to put a bit of context to it. So, in the early 1980s, Germany was still separated into East and West Germany. The place where Marianne would find work would still be a student town. I mean, I still think it is to this day. So, this place in particular, it didn't seem like it was kind of high-end, so it would be used as a student hangout. And it would also mean, you know, free ideas were flowing in this type of bar. 
It would be a place that looked homely, that you could be accepted in, but also it didn't, from the outside, look like a place where you would really want to work as a waiter or waitress. It just doesn't seem like it would be heavy on the tips, especially if it is, as it still is today, mostly a student hangout. You just know you're gonna be overworking yourself and not really getting as much income as possible. However, for Mariana, this point in time, this would suffice, this would be enough. Hearing the type of bar that she was about to start working in, you might form your own opinions, whether or not you would thrive in such a place, whether or not you would like to work with students, you know, with all of the ideas when it comes to war and history and everything kind of free-flowing around the space, or whether this would be absolute hell on earth, where you would be like, no, I'm going to impose my political views and I'm gonna fight everybody and, like, fuck these students, I want my tips. Well, Marianne actually thrived in this kind of environment. It would be said that she loved spending the time in the noisy place that this was, and that she loved that everybody knew her, that this would be the main factor when it came to Marianne. She loved being the known face. She loved being known by the locals. All of the articles, and I cannot emphasize on this enough, want you to believe that it seemed like everything at every point in this story revolved around Marianne. And you know, when you see it once, when it comes to a bar, you're like, okay, maybe somebody gave like an eyewitness testimony, they have worked with Marianne, whatever. But then when you see it happening throughout the story, you kind of either have to believe it might be the truth or that maybe all of these journalists are gunning for the same angle. It is really up to you to decide once you hear the full story. But she was beautiful, she was somewhat temperamental, and soon enough she started dating another person that was working at this bar, called Christian Bethold. That brings us to 1972. Marianne is dating this bar manager called Christian, and she gets pregnant again. Now, this time she is 22 years old, so she decides, you know, I'm in a better position, I have some savings, I have been working here for quite some time now, I have a place on my own, I'm actually going to keep this child, like, through and through, keeping it, not giving it up for an adoption. When she tells this to Christian, however, he decides to skedaddle. He decides to fuck off, so she decides in 1973, when Anna was born, to be a single mom and also to tie her tubes in order to never have children again. This is something that I haven't looked further into, but I would like to know, like, I would love to know if anybody here is actually watching this from Germany and if you have gone through something like tubal litigation there, possibly in the 1970s, but no, like, what are the chances that that's going to be the case? So if anybody knows of it, just let me know, like, in any further details. First of all, is it free? You know, how would you go about it? Because I remember looking up, like, female sterilization here on the NHS website at some point, and it just... Like, the amount of reading you have to do, first of all, which is peak coming from somebody who does research on the weekly, but just the amount of reading that you have to do in order to go through that process would put you off. I know this is different times, it's 1970s, she would probably just appear at the place and be like, hey, tie my tubes, or the same when it comes to the adoption. But nobody really 
points these things out in this story, and that is that, again, she would go through adoption twice before, and then even after having this child, she would go to, you know, proceed with tubal litigation. And it's all a procedure, in a way. Like, I don't know what it says about her psychology, but they're easier ways, at least in my head, especially in 1970s, to go about it. Like, whether it is abortion instead of then carrying the pregnancy to the full term, or just even when it comes to the adoption and then the tubal litigations, just nobody talks about how every single one of these instances is an actual process that she had to go through. Especially now, she's a single mother, she decided to keep her daughter, and still she's gonna go through with, like, a whole procedure in order to stop herself from having any further kids. I don't know if there's anything in there. Let me know if I just went on for nothing. But I just think it's interesting as, like, the psychology of her, where I feel like she processes things in the aftermath rather than thinking of it as you go. And I feel like I'm gonna get hate for this. But sure, let's move on and speak about little baby Anna that was now just born in 1973. Anna was said to be growing up as a happy and free-spirited child, and there are two different versions of the story of how her mom, Marianne, was treating her. As we know, Marianne was a single mom who had the job at the bar that she had to keep in order to sustain her whole family, which was her and her daughter. So, a lot of sources state that Anne would spend all of her time on the streets, entertaining herself, just like playing with other children, going on playgrounds, all of that kind of without supervision. And then there are other sources that purely state this was neglectful parenting, that maybe she could have just brought Anna to the bar, to her own shifts, that she didn't really have to leave her on the streets to basically fend for herself, because these would be Anna's early years. The crime happens when Anna would only be seven years old. So, throughout most of her childhood, basically since toddler days, Anna would just be spending her time on the streets of Germany. Because of this, and because Marianne was actually aware of the situation, she was aware that she was spending a lot of time outside of hanging out with her daughter, this is BTW just according to one source. But there is a source that states that Marianne spoke with a married couple that she knew about possibly taking Anna in as some sort of adoption, taking her in as a foster child. In Marianne's eyes and in what she told to this couple, she only disclosed that this would be a temporary situation. No decision would be reached on this, and this is just one account of events, but Marianne was said to be thinking about it all the time. During the last few years of Anna's life, her father would still be in the picture, but still, it would just be like sporadic visits. He wouldn't be basically seeing her on the ongoing basis. And this meant there were no rules for Anna. There was nobody actually setting any boundaries, any curfews. And this, as I mentioned again and again, is a seven-year-old child at this point, who is just let to roam freely. She doesn't really know right from wrong. She doesn't really know who she should trust. She doesn't really even have a role model in that sense, where somebody can teach her, you know, 
don't speak to strangers, say no to candy on the street, anything like that just isn't really implemented in her upbringing. While her mom would be asleep after a late night at Tipasa, Anna would play outside on the streets of Lubeck. Everybody knew her. She would speak with neighbors, play with their pets. Every single person on those streets would know who little Anna is and that her mom isn't really supervising her. And that brings us to the 5th of May of 1980. Marianne would be still asleep in her apartment. And what we know is that the night before, she and her daughter got into some sort of argument. I don't really know what kind of argument you can get in with a child and the child doesn't forget about it like the same second and, you know, um, stop seeding the next day. But apparently the situation was not great the next day. What this meant was that Anna decided to rebel and not actually go to school on that day. But of course, because of this type of relationship that they had going on, Marianne wouldn't know about it to begin with. So in Marianne's mind, Anna went to school. And that day, from my accounts, I don't think that Marianne was supposed to be working. She was supposed to have some photo shoot for a local newspaper that afternoon. So, you know, she has a lie-in, she thinks her daughter is off to school, and she just wakes up as normal. But what she didn't know was that Anna, instead of going to school, decided to just walk over to a friend's house. She realized that a friend actually decided to appear in school that day, so she just did what she did best. She just started playing on the streets, talking to people, talking to everybody. As I mentioned, everybody knew who this girl was. Now back to Marianne. In the afternoon, she goes to that photo shoot for the newspaper. We know of this because there would be pictures, like the photo shoot would actually take place, and the journalists would later say that basically they remember it because of like a particular car, because obviously later it is associated to the two incidents. But when she returned from this photo shoot at house, like, there was no sign of Anna. And this would be weird because she knew when Anna was supposed to finish her school. So Marianne goes out looking for her, but she can't find her anywhere on the streets. So she waits until nightfall, you know, maybe thinking she either got lost, went to a friend's house, I don't really know because... I don't think she knew where her daughter was at that point, but she just decided to wait for a few more hours, and then she goes into a police station to report her daughter missing. The police takes in the report, but by the next day, Marianne still hasn't heard of Anna, and she hasn't turned up. And Marianne knew that, you know, her daughter was mad at her, so maybe she just thought, you know, maybe my daughter is spiting me, maybe I shouldn't be worried, but still she started ringing up all of the friends. So, like, all of the houses where Anna could be visiting any friends from school, and none of them have seen her. What Marianne didn't know is that after her reporting her daughter missing to the police, a woman walked into a local police station telling the police that her fiancé, who was a 35-year-old butcher, Klaus Grabowski, confessed to her that he had killed little Anna. Now, what the fiancé of Klaus Grabowski didn't know, and what Marianne wouldn't know, was that at that same time, as Marianne is worrying 
about her daughter, about where she is, about her whereabouts, as she has reported it to a different police station. And as the fiancé of Klaus Grabowski is reporting him, Klaus himself was out because he knew that as soon as his fiancée was to leave the room, that she will not stick by him, that she will confess to the police. So, what he did was he packed Anna's body into a cardboard box, loaded it onto his bicycle, taking it to the location near the bank of this canal, where he buried it in a shallow grave. As the police finally catches up and turns up to Grabowski house to arrest him, they don't find him there. He had left a note begging his fiancée not to turn her back on him, saying that he would wait for her at a local place, a local watering hole from everything, that night so that they could talk. So instead of the fiancée, police had waited for him there and arrested him on the spot. So... Who is Klaus Grabowski? What do we know about him? And why is this case controversial to its core? In the timeline of events that we have, we only pick up in Klaus Grabowski's history in the 1970s. So here, think about where Marianne was. She was about 20 plus years old. She just started working for Tipasa, getting her life in line, and then 72, she gets pregnant. She has little Anna and decides to keep this child. Meanwhile, on the other side of town, Klaus Grabowski, at that very moment, is already a convicted sex offender who had previously been sentenced for sexual abuse of two kids. I'm going to outline the sexual offenses in order to put the timestamp on the screen if you don't want to listen to that. It's not too much detail, but still, not too many people like to listen to narration about pedophiles, and I completely understand that. So, his first known victim was a six-year-old girl who managed to run away from him. What he did, though, is he didn't just let this girl run away. He started chasing her, then caught up with her, putting his hands around her neck. She luckily managed to still scream, and he had no choice to let her go. However, here he was caught because there were eyewitnesses. And here he was actually charged for attempted murder and given probation. So this would be early 70s, 1973 to be exact. Then in 1975, he would end up being charged with the sexual abuse of two young girls. And here comes the insane part. So in 1976, he gets sentenced to spend some time in this psychological institution and get a treatment, because by this point, he's a registered sex offender. People know that this is a pattern. This is a quote from his actual sentencing. On the basis of the convincing opinion of Dr. Hartmanis, the board is undoubtedly certain that the abnormal sexual instinct of the accused is addictive. The accused was aware of the unauthorized activity, but he was considerably limited in his ability to prevent it because of his addiction to the offense. That is the most politically correct and the most disgusting way to put that somebody likes molesting little children. I just... different times, I guess, and I guess you have to put it in a more appropriate way when it comes to the courts. 
and probably YouTube once you get monetized, Maya, because otherwise you're going to be censored and just blocked in all countries. So, you know, you should probably get up on this. No, just call it for what it is. Just let's just call it for what it is. It's not like addiction to an offense. It sounds like being addicted to freaking sugar and not like pedophilia. As part of his rehabilitation, you okay? No. Because he chose to be castrated. So, we have to talk about castration because I went into a freaking rabbit hole on this because it just doesn't make much sense. And actually, the history of it and where Germany is, even at this very moment, when it comes to castration, is insane. So, let me tell you what I found out. You have two different types, chemical and then the actual physical one that results in operation. Klaus here would have the physical castration, and then later we're going to be speaking about chemical and the hormones part of it that is equally controversial as everything in this case. Chemical, of course, is reversible, and even the physical one, from everything that I looked, you can get you know, sexual drive and urges through, again, hormonal kind of treatment. But in my mind, both of these were a thing of the past. Well, it came as a surprise to me when I looked up, you know, chemical castration, castration in Germany, and a few kind of recent articles popped up. The one that I've seen is from 2012, and then there's, like, a small update from, like, 2017 on this. Basically, under German law, a sex offender can still, from what I've read, please correct me if I'm wrong, be castrated if he asks for the procedure. And if they're older than 25 and get approval by the board, you know, they probably assess their mental health, I guess. Maybe not, to be honest. And the Czech Republic is also the only other European country to allow sex offenders to choose the surgical castration. On the surface, when you look at that, even I myself catch myself thinking, well, what's the problem with it? They are the lowest of the low. It is pedophiles. I don't need them to be able to even physically essay somebody or physically rape somebody because that somebody... Not that it's worse, it is worse, because they are underage, they can't even consent. So, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with it. But then, you scratch that surface and you go a bit deeper. And here I'm talking beyond, oh, the physical effects might lead to some, like, physical and mental consequences for the perpetrators, or it's not, like, drawn up in the guidelines, it should be recognized by international standards all of that bullshit. Like, is it questionable whether the consent will always mean that they're well informed? You know, what if they change their mind and can't reverse it in a couple of years? No. The main few issues that I have with it is that even when it comes to the studies, there's nothing really showing that there is a lasting reduction in their testosterone level. And also, the only study on this, which, you know, if it is a procedure that we are following in, like, 2022, why are there no more recent studies? Tell me I glitched. Fucking tell me I glitched. I would love to have glitched here. But the one I found was from 1997, that then studied sex offenders who had been castrated and then checking recidivism rate. Are they going to reoffend? In this study, they found out from the control group whose petition of castration was refused 
they would have about 46% rate of reoffending, whereas the group that was castrated only had 3% of recidivism rate. So you're like, okay, well, a huge difference. Clearly, they would reoffend. Clearly, they would reoffend in lower numbers, but then there are no recent studies. And my main issue here, truly, is that it just seems like Yep, there is this effective solution that we haven't really looked into or changed as a part of the law, and then we just move on. We wash our hands with it. Why? Because we think it's effective. No real studies based off of this to like support this that I could see, but we think it's effective because it is surgical, right? It is physical. They can't physically commit that type of crime. And some of you might agree with that, but for me, I don't agree with somebody just washing their hands off with pedophilia. With somebody who clearly has a pattern, when sentencing them, you mention that there is a pattern to the offense, and then you just wash your hands off with it, and you're like, I mean, he's gonna move on. He can't physically offend somebody. But he's clearly into little children, so whatever crime he's to commit will be against little children. Am I incensed? Yes. And then I promised you two articles. So the article from 2017, there's literally two like copy-pasted articles, comes under the title that the Council of Europe is praising Germany's effective discontinuation of surgically castrating some sex offenders, although the law has not been revoked. So what the fuck does this mean? Well, apparently, Germany responded the castration is now used only to treat a person's serious illness. And that, the committee said that during the period between 2013 and 2015 in France, apparently, so I'm not sure if this is committee in France, the report in France, giving data on Germany, or in France, they didn't have any surgical castration carried out between 2013 and 2015, but that it's urging the laws to be changed to prevent it permanently. So fuck all is still being done. And again, <laughs> the fact that there's no interest in this makes me think that a lot of people don't really share my opinion, that people don't really care because it is sex offenders. Why wouldn't they be able to choose castration? Well, if you're German, first of all, I want to know if there is a consensus on this, like, if anybody talks about it, and if so, you know, what is being done with regard to that. People who have access to, you know, German media can understand it, can easily read it. Let me know. But, um, why? The main reason, even beyond people washing their hands once somebody is castrated, is the main reason for the castration, especially in this case, but in all of the others, is that an offender can choose to be submitted to a surgical castration in order to get less time, in order to get out on the streets then. And that just doesn't sit right with me. I don't know, maybe it sits right with you because they technically have the surgical castration, but it just doesn't really sit right with me. So he was given a choice. In this case, Klaus, that is, if he agrees to the castration, he would be released. If not, he was to remain at this institution, which you can imagine, 1970s probably wasn't the most pleasant 
place in the world for an extended period of time. So Klaus here, of course, agrees, the procedure is performed, and he was released shortly after. That brings us back to my first issue with the surgical castration, which was that there was no follow-up treatment, no help, no, you know, mental health assessments afterwards, because, again, are we saying that we completely don't care about how they're performing? Are they going to re-offend? Apparently so, at least in this case. This would lead to, two years after his release, Klaus visiting a urologist. And he visited this particular urologist in order to request hormone treatment to reverse that castration. The story that Klaus would give this urologist was that him and his fiance were trying to start a family, and that also he had some physical side effects to the actual surgical castration. So, you know, two years in, he was just saying he was suffering from some side effects to that first one, and, you know, he really fought these hormones in the light of him wishing to start a family, continuing on this normal lifestyle pathway, would just be so, so great if he could just have them. And, of course, you can imagine that these kind of tablets that he was prescribed would just further enhance his sex drive. To use the right terminology, what this truly meant was that at the time of Anna's murder, Klaus would have the same level of testosterone as before his castration. So, in March and April of 1980, Klaus would get injected with testosterone, and he would also get prescribed tablets that he can take at home. So, this urologist treated this man without checking his background, without checking his history, without checking, you know, what procedures he had gone to, and why. Mainly, why is why we are here. So, Grabowski just managed to lie to him, saying that he has been receiving mental health support, and the urologist just never double-checked, you know, why would you? It's not like he's a sex offender. Just wash your hands and let it be. Later, this urologist would admit that he knew nothing about Klaus's past, and that he only treated him from a physical point of view in the aftermath of a castration. Like, bro... <laughs> You know why this stresses me? Like, imagine having a job. I actually had an internal joke when I was a teenager in high school that I will become a urologist and then just make fun of weird dicks. But if you are a urologist and somebody comes to you with any sort of surgical operation, I couldn't actually find, like, was he fully castrated? Was it just the balls? Was it the penis? Like, I couldn't find what form of castration was performed here. Like, was it in full? Was it not? But whichever way it was done, if you're a urologist, like, do you not want to ask questions? Like, if somebody comes to you, surely it's not like an everyday occurrence. At least out of curiosity, you ask why, and then you follow up if you suspect that they're lying. Apparently, this person did not give a fuck. Or maybe in his freaking office, this happens every day when somebody just walks in having had surgical castration. I just, it just blows my mind. And this, both the urologist failing to follow through and also Grabowski having the same amount of testosterone in him that he did prior to the castration 
would be a point of contention through his trial. But less than two months after this visit to the urologist, Anna would be dead. Back in real time now, Klaus is arrested, and this is what he will tell the investigators. I feel like part of this story that he would tell to the police is important to be heard, but regardless, I'm gonna put a timestamp on the screen now if you don't want to hear about the actual murder. So, he would tell the police that he would spot Anna on the streets that day, he was just playing as usual, and then he invited her, or according to some sources, abducted her from the streets, and she visited his home to play with his cats. Again, as I mentioned, some sources state one thing, some state the other. I would love to know, would Anna have said no if he was just to invite her into his house, but we just don't really know for sure. He would there hold Anna for several hours. It was said that he sexually assaulted her, even though he would always deny that part. And then he used the pair of his fiancé's tights, like leggings or tights, in order to strangle little Anna. According to the prosecutor, then, he tied her up. According to most sources, Anna would be found hogtied inside of a wooden box, and then he would just leave her on the bank of the canal. From what I understand, because again, some sources state it was a wooden box, some state it was just like a cardboard box that he had at his house, but most sources state that he left her on the bank of a nearby canal. So, from what I get from that is that it wasn't inside of the canal, it wasn't in the water. I'm saying that because, I mean, there was no technology back in the day, so really, back then they couldn't be able to confirm if any form of assault had happened. And now actually thinking about it, if he did have surgical castration, they just, regardless of what I'm saying, wouldn't be able to really confirm that. So, we just never know. If you trust the police, probably some sort of essay, just knowing his background, happened. And if you trust him, he didn't. So, if nothing happened in terms of crime, then you might wonder, well, okay, abduction, yes, would still count as a crime, but he could just let Anna go. She maybe wouldn't even say anything, you know, if nothing really happened in that house, if she was just playing with his cats. So, what was his excuse? Why did he have to kill a seven-year-old? Oh, boy, if you were incensed until now, just wait. So, Klaus's version of events to the police is that he didn't intend to abuse, he didn't intend to do anything, okay? He said that a seven-year-old tried to seduce him, seduce him, and then extort him. So, basically, he kind of admits there to a crime, he admits there to some sort of sexual assault, and then, of course, he didn't want to do it, like, he didn't actually sexually assault her, so she said she will tell. She said she was going to leave that house and say that he did. And in the fear of going back to prison, but then he decided on the spot to kill her. You know how seven-year-olds can be just, like, really, really threatening? Yeah, he thought the police will eat this. Like, yeah, they ate this. This is solid. 
freaking alley by a seven-year-old who just threatened me. According to some sources, he actually put like a precise value that she was to extort him for, which would be five Deutsche Marks, which is like the currency in Germany back then, which is just, no, you wouldn't kill somebody for five Deutsche Marks. No, you wouldn't. So apparently Anna would say that she would tell her mother that he touched her inappropriately if he wasn't to give her the money, which yet again, I don't think that a seven-year-old would know even what to say in that case. We just know he's lying. I'm just trying to pinpoint every single point in which he's actually lying. Just so, you know, he doesn't get away with it in your minds. And just to see the rage that will proceed after this. The rage of the public, the rage of Marianne, and the rage ultimately even today when you retell this story, as you can feel, I'm incensed, and then when you hear it and what it actually meant on the surface, and why so many people justify Marianne's actions in the aftermath of this. 29-year-old Marianne would be informed of her daughter's murder that night, and again, according to the sources that you read, there are two completely black and white reactions to this. So the police would say that Marianne's reaction was strange, that she didn't really want to speak to them, and that she also refused to identify the body in the morgue. And police never experienced this type of reaction before, so they didn't really know why, what needs doing, like, is she just in a state of shock, or is there something else going on here? But then the news would be on Marianne's side. They would report that she was actually destroyed by this, and that she would always struggle with the feelings of guilt. So you have reports of Anna's funeral, where people say that Marianne made sure that it was everything but traditional. Again, she was sort of like rebelling, even though this was technically her daughter's funeral, that she arranged for Pink Floyd's song to just blast loudly in church. And then again, you have other accounts that state that she hated herself for even considering giving up Anna for adoption, she can't forgive herself for the fight that she had with Anna the night before she was out on the streets, abducted, and then killed. And I'm giving you the outline of two completely different accounts, because this is truly where the story goes from this point on. Either people will be fully on Marianne's side, they would understand the survivor's guilt in a way, and they would fully support what she does, or they will see this woman as a neglectful mother, who from this point on just saw even a way to just exploit this story and make it not be about her daughter whatsoever. Make it be all about herself. And that brings us, whichever way you see that, to a year after the murder of little Anna, when Klaus Grabowski headed into court for his trial. The first two days of that trial went something like this. Grabowski's defense attorneys would claim that this act, you know, him acting in murder, of course, didn't correspond to his previous patterns. Otherwise, I mean, he would have definitely been in jail. Rather, he was acting out of a hormonal imbalance because, well, he had this visit to the urologist and they gave him all this bunch of hormones that he never took and never would have even taken if, you know, castration wasn't the only freaking option for him. 
Of course, what that meant was that the urologist had to take the stand and testify, justify himself for why he did this, you know. Was there actually even any truth to this chemical imbalance, to whatever Klaus was saying, to justify his actions? What he said on the stand, according to news articles, was as a medical professional, I was of the opinion that castration of a man at such a young age was just unjustifiable. I just had to help the man. So let's I have the name, let's let's shame him, let's let's do that. His name, the urologist's name, is Dr. Volker von Ende. And when he was called to testify, he actually said on this occasion, and this is again just from the court stuff, so I am not sure if this is correct or if this is the story that he conjured up on his end, because in the end he would probably have his own records that he could falsify and whatnot, but according to the urologist, why he came, right, why this was his professional opinion, was that Klaus told him that he was castrated because he was merely an exhibitionist. Because of how records were kept back then, of course, this wasn't the doctor's fault whatsoever, Klaus didn't disclose any information. He didn't disclose that he was a registered sex offender, that he was actually tried for two sex crimes before this one. No, so the doctor just didn't really look into his criminal history, didn't follow up, and just prescribed the medication that he would in this particular case. This testimony would take place on the second day of the trial, and it was said then that once Marianne heard this story, because I would assume that these stories back then would be heard for the first time during the testimony at the trial, and that's probably why they had the impact on her that they had. So once she heard that, she said that she might actually file a criminal complaint against him, that she might actually sue this doctor, but as we'll soon learn, that actually wouldn't happen, because all of the criminal proceedings against him would soon be automatically ended. Next, to speak at a trial from, again, most of the sources at the witness stand was Klaus, the man himself. So it was said that during this testimony, Marianne was on edge, which, like, completely understandable. She would be sitting in the front row of the courtroom just looking at him. And according to the eyewitness testimonies, she would kind of try to even maybe egg him on. Like, people would say that under her breath she was saying, say something, you pig. But it wouldn't be, at least in my opinion, until Klaus opened up his mouth and said what we now know, that Marianne's mind would be made up. In his testimony, he said that he gave Anna one Deutsche Mark to buy Coke. And then she proceeded to blackmail him. She said, give me more, otherwise I'll tell my mother that you caressed me. Then he was asked to describe the last moments of Anna's life. He said, I heard something come out of her nose. I was fixated. Then I could not stand the sight of her body any longer. On top of him being allowed to speak, during that second day, Marianne would also hear a police officer describe the scene of how Anna's body had been found. And the fact that the body was hogtied would just cause stir in a courtroom. And again, if this is the first time that she's finding this information, it all kind of resonates in your head, like how impactful everything is, because she's finding all of this traumatic information on the same day. 
The eyewitnesses would also say that later, on that second day, Marianne might have misunderstood a conversation that was going on between the judge and the defense attorney of Klaus's. It seemed like she might have overheard that Klaus was to actually testify on the next day as well, that he had any further information. And of course, the information that she had heard today, where he blamed the victim for the murder, the victim being the seven-year-old, she didn't want to listen to that again. That might have just stressed her out and pushed her over the edge even more. What is neglected here, and where I would like to mention it again, is the trauma that Marianne experienced as a child. So, we know that she has suffered some form of abuse, whether it was just emotional, in the hands of an alcoholic father, and then if, you know, it was anything else when it comes to the stepfather. I mean, there, in the background, literally, I saw everything, from a tyrant to sexual abuse to physical abuse, so I don't really know what to make out of it, but you just know that this is some trauma that stems from the childhood and then stays with you, and you kind of always see the world through those lenses, unless, again, you receive great mental health therapy, you receive some counseling, which in this case we just know never happened because of the time that we are talking about, because of the conditions. So, seeing something like this, somebody blaming a victim for the crime could have also resonated differently in Marianne's head than it would in mine or yours. The court resumes for that day, and on the third day, according to all sources, what they should discuss was whether or not he was actually fully guilty. And again, according to plenty of articles you will read online, the director of the criminal psychiatry department had declared before, in a written report that was probably presented at this court, that Klaus was fully guilty for this crime. But after the first few days, his and other people's opinions started changing. Because of the liability of the urologist, because of the negligence, the potential negligence that was displayed by Marianne, because of her behavior in court, because of how he came across, for all these different things that went into it. And it is important to know that, you know, he was probably to get his verdict on the very next day. So, on Friday morning, 6th of March, 1981, which, according to most sources, was supposed to be the day of his verdict, there were not that many people in the courtroom, and five minutes before the start of the sessions, the door opened. Klaus was led inside from the side door, taking into the chair where he would usually sit in the dock. He would be sitting with his back turned to the entrance. And then, few minutes after 10 o'clock, you could hear Marianne's ex-boyfriend and Anna's father witnessing an incident and stating, she did it. She actually did it. Because Klaus Grabowski did not see his own murderer coming. There were about three meters separating Marianne Bachmeier, who just entered the courtroom, and the defendant's bench. When she got in, calmly took a 22 caliber Beretta pistol out of her purse and pulled the trigger eight times. Six of those shots would hit Grabowski, and he would die then and there on the floor of the courtroom. 
The witnesses would say that they would never forget that moment that Marianne just calmly pulled a pistol from her pocket and that she aimed and then fired. They would also say that the grieving mother, once she shot him, said, I wanted to kill him. After committing the murder, it was said that she just left the pistol slide to the floor. It slid a few meters away from her and she knew she will be arrested. She seemed completely indifferent to that, as if she had just had her job done. As you could imagine, this case was big and the public was immediately divided. There would be TV programs airing it with the title I would have shot him too. Within a week, Marianne herself got about 100,000 marks as a donation with the intention purely to pay for her legal fees. There was a weekly German magazine called Stern, meaning stars, so I suppose this is a tabloid, that would run a series of articles just purely following her own trial. They would also interview her. She would get paid heftily for it, about 250,000. Deutsche Marks, again, simply to tell her own story. And that she would use, of course, to drive the narrative of her rough start to life, of her traumatic background, and, of course, to try to get the public to empathize with her, rather than seeing it as a neglectful mother. The public, because of the news, because of the narrative at the time that this crime should really be seen as justified, really neglected to see that in the eyes of the law, Grabowski died an innocent man. Rather, wait, rather, come in, an innocent man of this crime. Innocent of the particular crime in question. I feel like this introduces us to another controversy of this case. Had he been not convicted, you know, had he gone to this trial, four days happens, he's found not guilty, and then she pulls out a gun out of her purse, would you be thinking the same thoughts that you are as you're listening to this case, or would your opinion change on it? Because that's ultimately really what it is all about. But the courts had to follow the law. And the law here, in particular, when speaking about the charges that would be brought against Marianne, would lead to yet another history lesson. Don't you just love when I cover a freaking German case that is in the past? It's just never as simple. In short, Marianne couldn't be initially charged with manslaughter. Despite of the trauma, despite of her childhood, despite of the trauma that um, Klaus caused to her by killing and abusing her daughter, it had to be murder because of an old Nazi law that, from what I saw going on, is still in place today. Again, correct me if wrong. So, it had to be murder because the victim couldn't have expected the attack. He was, after all at his own trial, awaiting verdict. So, that makes sense, but there is this old law that kind of applies in this case. And according to the German Association of Lawyers, the Nazis in the past decided that a murderer is somebody who killed treacherously or sneakily. And that word is in the law, and it remains there today. The word is heimtukisch. Heimtukisch, umlaut, umlaut, more, more emphasis on umlaut. Heimtukisch. That was no more emphasis on umlaut. 
The law in itself has sexism as its baseline, because even according to the lawyers, basically according to this law, battered woman is more likely to be convicted of murder rather than the actual domestic abuser. But what you need to know here is that in the penal code concerning murder, somebody is guilty of it and not manslaughter if they abuse the victim's defenselessness. So basically, if you are the stronger person and not a victim or cannot be perceived as a victim by any means, which Klaus technically here couldn't have been perceived as, well, then they have to charge you as a murderer rather than the person committing manslaughter. Now that you have that information, Marianne was arrested. She was actually released, I'm not sure if on bail or on what grounds, but then they rearrested her because they were convinced that she was a flight risk. So she would be in custody during the span of the next 15 months, and during that time it was said that she actually attempted to take her own life about five times. In the interviews later, she would say that she just wasn't cooperating with a court-appointed psychologist to the degree that they wanted her to cooperate in, that, you know, she wasn't opening up and sharing anything with them, and that some of the strategies that they deployed were brutal in an approach to break her into talking to them. Regardless, again, of which version you believe, the court would rule that she would remain in this psychological facility until her trial. The prosecution would have to show some evidence to prove that this might have been premeditated, a lot more premeditated than we might think. And they use the eyewitness statements about her behavior in court, about how she might have actually been nagging him on, just waiting for him to say something that would enrage her, and then... Also later, that she might have actually said a couple of things, like after she shot him, she wanted to do it, and about her ex-boyfriend, who would say, according to eyewitnesses again, she did it. She actually did it. Insinuating maybe she had mentioned it before, or he was aware that she might be capable of doing such things. Another thing that they have used in order to prove premeditation is that out of the eight shots, regardless of, you know, this being maybe a couple of meters between the defendant and where Marianne was standing, still six of them reached the intended target. And the investigators here would determine, I'm not really sure how, but they would say that Marianne bought this gun and practiced shooting target in the cellar of Tipasa. So, I mean, if she practiced with actual bullets, or even if it was like the Unreal ones... What is the name for the Unreal bullets? Unreal bullets. It doesn't come to mind. It is frustrating for both of us right now. I mean, the shells would be, like, stuck in the wall. Okay, I kind of get how they would have been able to determine that right now. Boy, this day was long. According to the investigators, Marianne would also admit that she bought the Beretta from somebody at the bar and then kept it hidden at Anna's grave. And she said after Anna's murder, she felt unsafe, and then this is why she bought a gun, for self-defense, not in order to commit murder. She would say that despite of owning the gun, buying it for self-defense, she never had any target practice. 
But the prosecution here would say, you know, removing it from the handbag so smoothly without anybody noticing, so speedily, removing the safety and then shooting in one swift action proves otherwise. She stood only about 11 feet, which is like three and a half meters, behind Klaus. The experts that they would bring to the court believed that she must have had at least some prior knowledge to how to handle firearms, because of how calm and confident she was during this shooting. Both the defense and the prosecution would target particular emotional period of Marianne's life. The defense team would argue that this shooting was a spontaneous reaction, that it was caused by the emotional turmoil. Basically, they kind of blame the victim in this case as well, which again, justifiably so, but they had to do it regardless. They said that Marianne believed that Klaus was to take the stand again and make another incriminating statement against her daughter. And that is what eventually ended up provoking her. They would state that her act of killing the murder of her child was an act of defiance at its strongest, taking the law into her own hands inside of a courtroom with multiple witnesses, knowing full well she is about to get arrested, thinking that, in the end, it is justified. The prosecution, on the other end, knew that the most of the audience would be mothers, females, daughters, people who would have the emotional connection to this case. So they flipped the coin on the other end, attacking Marianne's mother skills. They would point out to all of the times that Anna would just be left on the street, while Marianne was in the bar, while she was just working, while she was having her photo shoot on the day when Anna was getting murdered. And the prosecution pointed to something interesting, and that is that this act was actually not driven by revenge. Why would she avenge a child that she has been neglecting from the early age? Why would she? Because we know of her past. We know that she gave two kids up for an adoption, and even then, even after having Anna, she had gone through tying up her tubes. So, it is easy to see how maybe the audience, the jury, the judge, would not see somebody like Marianne as the mother of the year. The prosecution will suggest that maybe she was paralyzed with guilt and it was done out of principle. Or maybe this killing was a reaction as somebody taking something that was hers, such as a spotlight. So while the defense was trying to showcase Marianne as this sympathetic person, trying to make her relatable, show her as this single mom who was doing everything she could in order to bring Anna without her missing anything, in order to make sure that she is well covered for, and also making sure that they introduced her background for people to actually understand why she might have snapped, why she might have actually had some trauma in her own childhood that might have caused her to behave in such a way, well, the prosecution and the news media, a lot of news media here, started shifting their opinion. Because even though she had a lot of support, through this trial, people started seeing a different side to Marianne. Marianne became somewhat 
of a celebrity, at least in her own head, but also you could imagine when you have that much publicity on you, that many news organizations following the trial, that you will try to play it up to your favor. So you can see it again both ways, but a lot of people notice how she started just posing for cameras and actually driving the attention to herself. Usually people say that, you know, the defendants at trials try to do the complete opposite, try to avoid photographers, like cover their faces, like, you know, so many instances of people getting out of the courtroom and not wanting to be spotted. That wasn't the case with Marianne. And people who criticize this believe that this was somebody who was always seen as a victim, as somebody on the fringes of the society, somebody who really hasn't had it all. And at some point, now that has changed. And she started playing it up. She started suddenly realizing, well, others see me as this beautiful, fierce person who isn't weak anymore, who took the justice into her own hands, and I want them to see me like that. That brings us to the verdict. As we know, in 1982, so just before her trial was to begin, she would be charged with murder because of the old Nazi law, because of sexism and a bunch of weird historical shit. Marianne would be found guilty in 1983, but then, on 2nd of March of 1983, after 28 days of negotiations, the board agreed to drop the verdict to manslaughter. So this is when she would be charged for the unlawful possession of a firearm to six years in prison, but would later only be released after serving free. This means that Marianne would be released in 1985 after serving a total of three years. I think they counted the psychiatric imprisonment here. So, of course, the prosecution was enraged. The judge found that it was suitable, that the information that Marianne heard on that second day might have pushed anybody over the edge. And then there were the opinions of the public. There were surveys run on this case. And... I'm gonna tell you what the public opinion was. 28% of people felt that the sentence was appropriate, 27 reckoned it was too harsh, and 25% felt she got off too lightly. And then the remaining 20% were indecisive. They just couldn't really decide. The question that people still have today and why this case was so impactful on the German society and the society elsewhere as well, if you're hearing this story, is was the public so understanding all throughout this case? Because the real victim, the number one victim in this case that we are talking about, was a child. The questions that people still raise today is what would the sentence have been? Would it have ever been dropped to manslaughter if she had killed a brother or husband, if this was some sort of revenge killing? Marianne herself wouldn't really answer that question for us, so that is more for you to let me know what your opinions are on. But she would give interviews in the years after her release. And she would sort of clarify why she decided, regardless of the fact that this was happening at the actual trial, where he could have been sentenced, to decide upon Klaus's fate. 
And she said that the city of Lübeck was part of West Germany at the time, which meant that the death sentence wasn't on the table. So she wanted to be the one to punish him, and she didn't want to leave it in the hands of the system. She wanted to be the one to sign his death sentence. In another interview, Marianne would say that she was sorry that it happened, but she did not feel sorry that he was dead. Quote, I can't imagine that I would have shot this person if he had turned around and said that he was sorry about what he had done. End quote. In yet another interview, she sort of confirmed that she was triggered by his testimony on the stand, by just how belittling it was, by the whole victimization of it. And she said she didn't want to avenge Anna's death, but rather wanted to prevent Klaus from making a statement that she felt was the most extreme insult. And I find this so fascinating because... It just didn't have to happen. That's the case with so many of these vigilante cases. I mean, every single one, because there's a vigilante part to them. Or just like, however you reason with it, it didn't have to happen yet. Like, I understand he would have never gotten a death penalty. But still, like, wait on the outcome, even if it is... (laughs) I sound like I'm condoning crime. Don't do any of this, okay? But I don't know. I don't know if I would have had a different opinion had she waited for the verdict to be announced and then snapped inside of that courtroom. I don't really know. But because, of course, what we are talking about is he would have ended up in prison, he would have been out of her reach. I just can't fully justify it ever in my head. Because, I don't know. I lie, I know. Because she's playing the jury judge and the executioner in every single instance here. Because she's the one then deeming that even the death penalty wouldn't be enough, so she's taking it into her own hands. Like, what if the death penalty was on the table? What if this was in the US and he would be like electric chair? Would that suffice? Most probably not. Let's be honest. Most probably wouldn't have sufficed even then. I don't know, do you share the same opinion? But it's just these people... When it comes to vigilantes, they do like to play the executioner. They do like to have that power. And they decide, in their mind, the law isn't enough. What's put into the system, what the system already has set in place, just isn't enough. And for me, that means that in your head, you're above the law. That's just how I see it. We can disagree, okay? We can disagree. (laughs) And that, weirdly enough, brings me to the next sentence in the script, and that is that a lot of people thought that the motivation was purely selfish. That either she decided that her life had no meaning up until the point when her daughter was murdered, and suddenly Marianne found herself in this limelight. And then, in an attempt to make the most out of it, she needed to do something. She needed to be perceived as something else rather than just a grieving mother. To give some meaning to her life. And I hate to say it because it is morbid, it is grim, but there is some basis to this. I mean, if you think about how much information we have on each and every person in this story, the most amount of information that we have is on Marianne. It just stops being about Anna at some point. As we know, she also profited out of it. She sold her life story to German magazine Stern for about 250,000 Deutsche Mark. 
she used that money to pay off her debt, so for the legal fees. So again, you can understand why. And also, you kind of have to wonder, is there sort of a different motivation there? There are also two films that were released in Germany and that ran in cinemas concurrently on this case. And her own actions for the rest of Marianne's life would always be under harsh scrutiny. So let us talk about where this case is today. So in the late 80s, Marianne got married and she decided to move to Nigeria. Now, she would get divorced in 1990 and then she would move to Sicily, to Italy, and this is where she just worked as a caregiver. She would even later say that this was all on purpose, that she purposely didn't return to Lübeck, to Germany, because in that place she would only ever be known as Anna's mother. In 1994, she would give another interview where she would say, I think there is a very big difference if I kill a little girl because I'm afraid that I then have to go to prison for my life. And then also the how so that I stand behind a girl and strangle her, which is taken literally from the statement. I heard something come out of her nose, I was fixated, then I could not stand the sight of her body any longer, should be the clausy statement in court. In 1995, on another talk show appearance, she admitted that she had shot the alleged killer of her daughter after a careful consideration in order to enforce the law on him, and to prevent him from further spreading lies about her daughter. This, from all of the sources, would be her last interview, because she would end up being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and she would return to Germany. It was said that she asked the NDR reporter, the reporter for the German TV station, to film her last days alive. Marianne would end up passing away on 17th of September 1996 in Lübeck, she was 46 years old, and she was laid to rest in the same grave as her daughter. A lot of people have judged the idea that she wanted her last days on camera as well, saying that she is just, again, desperate for public attention and sympathy. And then again, I have seen in some sources that she also didn't want to be laid next to her daughter, but rather she wished to be buried in Palermo and not to be remembered just as Anna's mom, which I found super strange when I read, I'm not gonna lie to you, like, why don't you want to be remembered as somebody's mom? Like, why are you a mom then? But to each their own. But, you know, take it with a grain of salt. I have only seen that information in one or two sources, which is practically most sources for this. Anna's legacy remains through people retelling this story, but also through this Canadian group that in early 1980s started working on a theater piece about Marianne and her vigilante act. From what I've seen, I don't know if this play is still on or, you know, whether it only happened in the 1980s, it was a 20-minute production and it was a feminist play that mostly explored different themes, so violence, revenge, domesticity, and questions, the roles of Western women at the end of 20th century. So yet again, I wonder if anybody watched it, does the victim get lost in all of this, the real victim in this case, and is it yet again just about Marianne? But now, let us move on to the vigilantism and the motives for it. 
So here I came across yet another freaking rabbit hole while researching this, like we have spoken about castration, Nazi law, and now we are gonna speak about pedophile hunters in the online world. So I of course read this article because I find it interesting, like how would this case translate in today's world? Like would it translate, how would we perceive something like this? And Pedophile hunters, basically it is what it says on the tin. It is the groups of technically self-proclaimed vigilantes, people doing it for one reason, one motive or the other, that are using intrusive, mostly investigative methods, posing as children themselves in order to lure and basically spot out all of these pedophiles. And, you know, sometimes they do it in cooperation with the police, they don't waste people's resources, they don't waste the actual resources of, you know, the FBI, the police, etc. But a lot of times they just do it on their own. And that's A, dangerous, but also, as I mentioned, the one of the main issues is that you are wasting the actual resources because the actual authorities aren't aware of it. You are doing it purely because you're playing God, because you are thinking that you can, again, play the investigator better than they can, that you can actually help remove this pedophile from the streets while you're not the authority figure yourself. I mean, even here, if you think about it, Marianne didn't take into account that, I mean, there was just no forethought here, because what you kind of should consider as well is that you are about to be arrested yourself. So that means the resources are now going to have to be used on you for your trial. Now you are the perpetrator as well. And also, usually the problem today in the internet kind of world is that this leads to a lot of just smearing the person's complete identity online when, again, because of the lack of the skills, because of the lack of detective skills, investigative skills, whatever skills that you actually have that would allow you to prosecute that person, you kind of end up accusing an innocent one. Smear their identity online because that is the way that these investigations are usually conducted in such a way where then you create fake profiles, make sure that everybody is aware that there is a predator online, but you are technically not in charge. You don't have the badge. You don't actually have the skills. Even though, you know, you might have hunted your ex down on freaking Instagram and found their fake account, you don't have the actual skills to prosecute these people. The way that translates here is that technically he was, again, not convicted of this crime yet. So he was innocent of Anna's murder and sexual assault and everything that came along with it. So again, by killing him, you what she never saw is that she killed a partially at least innocent man. And that just, again, doesn't really reason with me, because you end up being guilty, you end up being prosecuted as a vigilante, you know, possibly as a hero in so many people's eyes, but still, you are guilty, and he is not. Like, imagine if he didn't have any predatorial history, if Anna was his first victim, 
Like, that would be the actual case. He would have been innocent and killed as an innocent man, while she would have gone to prison as a guilty woman. And if this didn't go to trial, and there was no conviction, and she took justice into her own hands, I would like to know, would you have changed your opinion on this case? Like, you know, if there was not enough evidence, if his fiance didn't report him, he was never caught, and she was the one to hunt him down, sort of in this style that I was just mentioning, just, you know, applied to 1970s. And, you know, some eyewitness testimonies, whatever, and she was to have taken justice into her own hands because nobody would listen, because she would have maybe reported it and it would have never reached trial. Would you have changed your decision and your opinion then? if that was the only way to get justice. Because I feel like the opinions would change depending on different circumstances. But speaking briefly now about the actual motives for vigilantism, if you follow the podcast channel and you have listened to the story on Bernard Getz and Subway Vigilante, and also if you have picked up on a couple of patterns during this one, well, you will know that it's all about enforcing beliefs. I just put it into, like, regular terminology, not me saying, like, they're playing God. So social vigilantes usually believe that they're obligated to enforce certain beliefs and standards, even when they target thoughts and behaviors that are not in any way illegal and that do not directly hurt anybody. And as we discussed it with Bernard Getz, social vigilantes display egoicism, meaning that they are convinced that their personal views should be imposed and understood by everybody. We've seen this in this particular case happen at trial. Because of some of her personality traits getting displayed, and also even later, you know, I try to judge things and the actions that people do once they actually follow through, like after they have been convicted, or, you know, that's why every single case I have ever covered has the where is this now, sort of, that we can reflect on that, see how they're behaving in the aftermath. And the multitude of things you can see is her press appearances, all the interviews Marianne had done, even, you know, recording the days where she's going through cancer treatments just before her death. Like, I don't know how to perceive that in any other way, but the person that enjoyed publicity in a certain way. Other traits of vigilantes that we can also apply in Marianne's case, one of them would be dogmatism, meaning tendency to be close-minded and see things just sort of like from one angle, the inability to see it from all of the other angles that I have just stated during this episode of seeing yourself as a guilty party, that you will be arrested, all of the funds that will be spent on you, seeing that he will not still be a guilty party, that he will still be seen as innocent in the eyes of many or just in the court of law, of this crime, you know, like, taking all of these angles into consideration of, like, how you will then be perceived, like, was it premeditated or not, it just seemed like none of that is considered. And that seems to be a pattern in the last case that we have covered as well, and it probably will be in the last vigilante case that I will cover. But then, also, the social vigilantes are highly motivated to control other people, 
and they narcissistically believe that their views are so superior that they should make an ongoing effort to change others' ignorant beliefs. And usually there is an underlying issue that we have seen here, and that underlying issue is surrounding the fact that vigilantes feel marginalized or victimized to some extent. And the crucial word here is feeling marginalized, feeling victimized. I'm not trying to downplay her background, the unsettling household, the trauma that she might have experienced here, but also that we have to take that into consideration and how that would have affected her decisions in court and how that would have in her head justified retribution because she didn't want him to treat Anna as a victim. She didn't want to be seen only as Anna's mother. As weird as that might appear to you and me, she didn't want to be a victim in this case. And that, unlike in her childhood, gave her the power to step up, gave her the power to actually act. Maybe she wanted to do it when she was a child with her own father, with a stepfather, possibly even later in life when she would get pregnant with her boyfriends. Maybe she actually wanted to showcase herself as this powerful woman who is in control, but wasn't able to. And finally, she saw her chance. She wasn't to be marginalized and victimized any longer. I love how I knew where I was gonna go, and then I put in the script, I'm not justifying it. Vigilantism to me is insane. I don't condone it. Now let's read this thing out, because... <laughs> my final paragraph. This is my final say, okay? This is it. Especially because it happens mostly in cases like this. Had it happened once, all of the other options fell through. I can't lie and say I wouldn't be like, okay, I get the psychology. What is going on in my head when I write? Passing it on to you now, though, what are your thoughts? This is my strong ending to the script. Wow. That is the case of Marianne Bachmeier. I am exhausted. It's been about 12 hours of just, like, work and then three hours of recording. I mean, 12 hours in total. I can't do math. Don't make me do math. What the fuck are you doing? I was sucked at math. So, yes, I'm passing this on to you now. Let's do it like a normal person. And I want to know your thoughts on all of the questions. I don't know how many questions I have asked during this one. If you are German, please let me know. Give me the inside info on everything. Again, <laughs> so many rabbit holes with this one. But yes, as I said, vigilantism is insane to me. And this story is insane to me because it's just not spoken about. Like, what the fuck? There's not beyond cute little innocent... Anna, who was seven years old, who didn't deserve any of this. Beyond her, there's not a single likable character for me in this story. I'm sorry to say it, a lot of you will go ahead and go, okay, oh, dislike, 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 unsubscribe, unsubscribe. Because you're gonna be worshipping Marianne, like hero of the year, mother of the year, revenge mom, all the things I have seen online, you will be worshipping the shit out of her. And I partially, I partially understand, I understand the revenge part as a Scorpio, I fully understand it. I mean, to certain degrees, I kind of even condone it in certain ways, you know, I try to give you the unbiased opinion. But then, when you really see the bigger picture, you just know there's not much forethought that went into this. And you kind of have to believe why she actually did it to her core 
to her core. And to me, the fact that she kept saying she didn't want to be associated as Anna's mother, I don't know. That does not sit right with me. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. I can't really see her as her grown-up self that decided to kill a person. I can't see that Marianne as a victim. I can see her as a victim, as a child, probably throughout teenage years, even, you know, her decisions and what she was making as decisions as a teenager, you know, going through tubal litigation, going through basically adoption processes. I can empathize with that. Her grown self and the decisions afterwards, I just can't. And you might disagree with me. In whichever case, share this controversial case with more people. Bring more attention to them. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And I should be seeing you a lot. Once I actually maybe get some rest. Finalize another deep dive. Boy, that one is going to be long. And uh, I will be seeing you hopefully next week. Word of the day. Heimtuklich. I bet I forgot it. I bet I forgot. Heimlich. No, Heimlich is like cloudy. German, just an FYI, is my third language. I should be speaking it like better than Spanish, which I also am rusty in, but can, can flex it. No, German just was not meant to be. I love you Germans though. You're just special, special place in my heart. I'm totally treacherous. The best word of life. The best word. No, play, play the clip, play the clip. It wasn't appropriate then, play it now. Don't make unnecessary journeys. Don't take risks on treacherous roads. And don't swim in the sea. Incredibly, people have been slaughtered in the water here in Black Rock and Salt Hill, both today and yesterday. Treacherous roads, you know it. You know what clip it is. If you have been on this podcast channel, I can probably play this every fifth episode. Okay, now, my, my everybody mixing the channel of mixing everything. Lost it. We'll go to KFC for a hot chocolate. Yeah, that's appropriate at like 10 at night. <laughs> Great. TMI. Bye now.